Now we move on with our presentations. And who would be better to lead the way than Alexei Kapterev, author of the book Presentation Secrets, published by John Wiley. Alexei is a teacher of visual communication at the Graduate School of Business Administration at Moscow State University. His Coursera course on slide design has recently made it to the Class Central's top 50 online courses of all time. So we have a true expert here. Alexei came to fame with his presentation entitled Death by PowerPoint, a presentation on presentations. He works with Mercator, Russia's premier studio producing corporate presentations. The title of his talk today is The Logos and Pathos of Presentation Design. During the next 30 minutes, Alexei will tell us why we should always begin our design with logos, unless we are talking to goblins and intend to keep them that way. Welcome, Alexei. My tech is going to be flawless, right? <laughs> Hi, I'm Alexei. I'm from Moscow, and I'm going to talk about slides of all the subjects in the world. Yeah. Um, and um, now, I'm not a designer, which is a very nice way to begin a presentation about design. Um, I just, I've never worked as a designer a day in my life. I was never educated as a designer. I just happen to have some design skills, which I think are quite useful, and which I try to pass to my students to the business school, and which I will be trying to pass to you. Um, and I also have to tell that I will be coming more from the business communicator's perspective, but using speechwriter's familiar language. Um, my own journey into slide design began about 10 years ago when I asked myself a question. How come those, I will just say McKinsey, all right? I think everybody knows McKinsey. How come those big management consulting firms, and I was working for a very small management consulting firm at the time. How come they're so successful when they, their slides look like this? <laughs> I mean, what on earth is that? Haven't they heard about Steve Jobs? How can one miss such an event in the presentation business, and they are in presentation business. This is probably like the second or the third most important thing they do. And by the way, it's only getting worse. I'm currently working on a project with one of those companies. The client actually hired me to interpret <coughs> after them, because this is what are they doing. <laughs> uh, if you think that's blurry, that's because I blurred it, all right? It's not your eyes <laughs> failing your eyes. Probably some of you thinking that I went way over the top to protect the client confidentiality. Nobody can see a thing anyway. But th this is what they do. This is the current reality. And for years I was like, <laughs> um, but <laughs> yeah. But, but but then I thought, you know what? The clients keep buying it, and the consultants actually seem to be enjoying doing it. So I thought. What's the harm? I mean, it's, if the, yeah, the chances that the market is wrong are high, but not astronomical. 
so it's probably me. <laughs> and then I saw what Apple does internally. They had this legal battle with Samsung, and there was a lot of documents, internal Apple documents released online. And this is what they're doing internally. That's not very Steve Jobsians, right? That looks like condensed McKinsey. And then I had this profound insight, which I reported on three years ago, not in this room, but at this conference, that you should probably adapt your communication to the audience's size. Great insight, right? Um, and then I came across this academic model called elaboration likelihood model. Uh, by the show of hands, who have here heard of elaboration likelihood model? A couple of you people. Excellent, it's very popular in the advertisement industry. I will try to explain it to you really simply. Suppose you're exposed to a message. It's like one of those click for more things. So it's a short, brief message. And then they ask two questions. Question number one, do you have any motivation to continue reading? <laughs> Question number two, do you have knowledge to cognitive capacity to understand the actual contents of the communication in all its entirety, in all the details? And in the answer is, to, is yes to both questions. You produce what is called an elaboration request, hence elaboration likelihood model. And then you receive detailed information and your life is changed forever. <laughs> right? It says permanent change. What they actually means more permanent change compared to the other change, which I'm going to talk shortly. Now, if the answer to one of those questions is no, then it all goes through what they call peripheral route, which is actually, in my experience, the main route. And the peripheral route is where you start relying on what they call peripheral cues. Posture, gestures, tone of voice, uh, I don't know, watches, uh, general attitude, stuff like that, you know, quick heuristics. We judge the book by its cover, right? This is what we do every day. And, um, well, in the original model, it was like two separate ways. Uh, 30 years later, we understand that people are actually doing this at the same time. It, it's going both ways. It's just, you know, percentages of things. So then, uh, when you rely on peripheral cues, you have this temporary change. And it, they call it temporary change because when the next day a taller and more confident person walks in and tells you that, that 2 plus 2 equals 6 and not 5, you say, all right, okay, he's taller after all. What do I know? <laughs> <laughs> and the only way to make this change more permanent is through repetition, which, if you think about it, is exactly what the advertisement is, industry is doing to us. Right? So, if you work in management consulting for a little bit too long, you start seeing everything as a two-by-two two matrix. Motivation expertise. I had this in my head, and then my internal eye was immediately drawn to this quadrant because I knew these people, and I had a name for them. Low motivation, low expertise. I called them goblins. I don't know if you're familiar with goblins, but sometimes you get a whole room full of goblins. <laughs> and that's your outer luck, basically. So, after I started with goblins, I had to continue in this Tolkienistic way. So I thought, well-intentioned, not very knowledgeable people, who are they? And I came up with hobbits. Because hobbits they are, right? Uh, 
very rare species these days called Mesozoa. Favorite food for the university professors. Right? Eager to learn, don't know much. Hmm. Here, elves, of course. Uh, very knowledgeable, a bit reluctant to do anything. Right? The tired experts. They've seen it all. You know who I'm talking about. And in the upper right quadrant, I think we have wizards. And if you think about the Tolkien's universe, there are like three wizards in the whole, and one of them is evil, and the other one is crazy. <laughs> Gandalf is the only sane person there. So as much as I love them, they're a rare breed. And apparently McKinsey think that they're mostly talking to these guys. And, well, more often than not, they are. But sometimes they are also talking to these guys and to these guys. And, and to, also to these guys as well. And this is where disaster happens. And then, one day, I was reading Cicero, like you do. <laughs> <laughs> and Cicero writes about three kinds of, three styles of speeches. One very, um, very emotional, more concerned with style than with substance. Uh, the pathos speech. The other one more blunt, more direct, more logical, logical speech. And then there's this middle ground, the golden mean, the coveted, ah, precise thing. And then he also draws the line and says, well, you know what, there's this other thing philosophers do. It is called dialogue. But we shouldn't be concerned with that. Because philosophers are seeking truth, and we're not seeking truth, we're just seeking to convince people that, that we are already true. So, uh, this is not our business, this is our business. And, and I thought, oh, great, oh, okay, of course, this is what you should be doing, right? With those people in the upper right quadrant, they are my peers. They probably know even better than me. I want to have a conversation with them. I don't want to do a hard sell to them, right? With those people, I need to convince them first. They're not prepared to act. I need to motivate them. Those kinds of things, uh, people eager to learn, I can have a lecture in front of them, right? They want the lecture. I don't know about the Finnish educational system, which I heard is great, but Russian educational system tends to move people from that corner to that corner. It just makes people knowledgeable and tired. <laughs> <laughs> and then, of course, sometimes we have goblins. And with goblins, it's mostly about focus. Right? You have to entertain them before you do anything else to them. So does it help to do design? It actually kind of does. Because with design, it's the same thing. You can do it the logos way, or you can do it the pathos way, right? You can actually, <laughs> many people think that you have to be very talented to do this, but it's actually, it's actually it's a more complicated ruler. That's what it is. <laughs> it's like storytelling, you can plan it, all right? So, and logos, it's not just the end result, but it's also the instrument that you use. Logos is about categorizing and prioritizing and optimizing things. And pathos is about, you know, contrasting, making things big and small, drama, um, illustrating the hell out of everything. And 
what they call creative disorder. So suppose uh, you have a task of designing a page for a workshop at NV. Uh, and uh, thank you, Brian, for putting me right up the library. So <laughs> this is my tribute to you. <laughs> you can do it the pathos way, right? If you know how to do it, it's doable. But then you can also do it the logos way. You can start prioritizing. You can think, well, what do we have here? With the given name, with the surname, what's more important? For the workshop at NV, it's probably the given name, right? People are on first name basis with each other here at least. So this one is more important. And then you put it in a larger type and less important thing in the smaller type. And if you'd like, you can have the best of two, the two worlds. And now, when you almost think that I will never get back to slides. <laughs> slides. <laughs> now, this is what people show to one another in those conference rooms. Uh, I think this should be outlawed. But, and, and then when they have this sort of, um, oh, it's boring, do something. They go online and they search for happy businessmen or whatever it is that they're searching, I'm not sure. And they come with this idea, <laughs> which, yeah, which produces an effect. If you are laughing, by the way, that's Goblin Park talk. I don't mean to be racist, by the way. Some of my best friends are goblins. I have goblin blood in me. We're all goblins to a certain extent, but we're all always goblins. And now, there was another approach with, which I was advocating for a number of years, which is just remove everything, leave just the essential. Uh, what are we trying to say? Um, write a message. This is the message. Uh, we're sending it to Empire. And then add some dramatic illustration. <laughs> Once again, goblin part talking. <laughs> but what I've discovered, um, not at conferences, but in the boardrooms, where I sometimes happen to be, that deleting has its own cost. When you delete things, you actually lose content. And people notice that. Um, you lose nuance, and that means that sometimes you lose credibility. And some people who actually want to understand lose that understanding, which I think is a shame. And I think that this uh, gentleman, is a very famous gentleman in the field of uh, UX, user experience design. It's about software. Um, what he meant, of course, is he meant that it's not the answer, right? It's just an answer. Now, what is the answer? Well, this is the answer. Basically, you have to understand whom are you talking to, and then you can produce McKinsey-style slides if you know how to do it. Echoing uh, Alexander's talk, it's not about PowerPoint or reading. The general advice would be do what you're good at. If you can read, read. I practiced reading for two years. Seriously, once a week. I can say that I'm pretty good at reading. I don't. <laughs> but I have become much better than I was. So um, there's also another way. You can strip what they call accidental complexity and leave what they call essential complexity. Because, well, even in politics, I know I'm talking to a room full of political speechwriters, but, and the audience is mostly goblins, but with 
with some policy issues, you cannot make a good decision unless you understand Bayesian statistics. There's just no way you're going to make a good decision unless you understand those intricate details. You cannot moralize everything, okay? Because the, the other side just comes with another equally strong moral arguments. They're all the same. We are pro-life, all, all right, we are pro-choice. <laughs> and we are stuck at the same thing. Some of the questions have objective answers. So sometimes you have to show numbers. Sometimes you have to show data. And <coughs> in that case, you have to begin with logos. And this is what I mostly do now. I'm going to do it really quickly. Now, we have to look for repetitions. If this is what we begin with, uh, these two things, are they the same? And they are, right? These two things, are they the same? Apparently they are. I don't know why, but people build a lot of redundancies in their communication. These two things. This is the actual example. I didn't make up any of this except for numbers. I changed all the numbers often. Uh, they are. And then you have to look what, do we need any of this? And we don't. And then what is this place? This looks irregular. And it's actually another set of <coughs> bars, what it really is. And then you have eight bars and you think, well, that's too much. Can we have two sets of bars? And apparently we can. And then you can add some gloss, if you'd like. Or you can add a lot of gloss, <laughs> if you'd like. The idea is basically the same. So you begin with logos, and you strip away everything non-essential. And then it's like that button in the airplane cockpit. You just press it hard enough for the audience to be energized. If the audience needs to be energized, that is. Sometimes you happen to talk to some very motivated people who don't need any those guys hanging from the cliffside. <laughs> so basically, this is more or less the choice. And this is more or less how you choose. This is how I do it now, most of the time. If, if this is a conference thing, that, this is probably would be enough. But if this is a boardroom thing, and sometimes decisions worth millions of dollars are made, not at conferences, but at boardrooms, I'd rather go for something like, like this. Um, and here, I would rather do something McKinsey style. Now, this slide, I had to get a cl this closure, all right? Odyssey, uh, he has to get back to his birthplace, to the hero's journey, you know. So, this is not a good slide for this particular room. And suppose you speak at this room, I would recommend you doing this. I mean, seriously, simplify the message, though. But other than that, I don't have any real objections. But if you are preparing a speaker <coughs> for the boardroom gig, well, I think this is what you need to do. You need to have a closer look at things and see if there's anything which just keeps repeating itself. And it kind of does. You have to trust me on this, that this is the same number, really. Um, so then this is called the waterfall chart. McKinsey invented those charts. But they only make sense if those bars in the middle go into opposite directions. If they all go into the same direction, it's just so much easier, it's just so much economical to just stack things on top of <coughs> one another. Okay? Does it make sense? 
This is the same chart. And the, the right one is easy on the eyes. And I can introduce meaningful color. And if I follow up on this approach, I will end up with something like this. I know this is too complex, and people in the back can probably can't see a thing. But this is what I would do in the boardroom again. I would probably not present it like this. I will include some dialogue in my presentation. I will show my audience the first part, and then I ask for their permission to continue. I ask, is it, are we clear? Is, and I can probably take questions. And then I will show them the second part. And sometimes there's a little bit of goblin element in the audience, and then I will go for it. <laughs> this always works with, with some people. So this is the choice. I don't know if you can see it, and I'm sorry. <laughs> but this is somewhat easier and simpler. And once again, I can use meaningful colors with, with this design. Um, I have other tricks in my sleeve, but this is mostly what I do with my business clients. So <coughs> unless you're talking to goblins and intend to keep them keep them that way. I think that our noble mission is to actually do more than, more than just entertainment. It's also education. Because once again, some of those policy decisions are quite tough. Begin with locals. And then dial that pathos dial exactly the way needed. And that way, you can do it all the way. I mean, there's really no more and that way, you can probably find this coveted golden mean. People always asking me, how do you find this? Well, improve your resolution. Explore the fringes. Try to do things the extreme way, and you will find it. Uh, and that would probably, maybe there's a chance for it, lead us to a productive dialogue, which I think, in the end, is the noble goal of public speaking. Fostering better decisions, not just convincing people. Thank you very much.